This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Continuing our discussion today on Fleet Admiral Ernest J. King is Dr. David Conan, Director of the Hattendorf Historical Center. Dave, welcome back for part two on King and World War II. It's always good talking and appreciate the opportunity to talk about our good friend Ernie King. Before we get into his war years, you have a book coming out about Ernest King. Can you tell us about it? The book is in three volumes. Publisher would like me to reduce the size of the study that I've produced over a long period of time. The challenge, of course, is that we're dealing with a a personality who really, he had a unique career of 50 odd years and he commanded in two world wars and it's really difficult to bring it into a 120,000 word manuscript. Right now it's at about 370,000 words. What we've done is we've broken up that story into three separate volumes. The volume that we'll be sort of focusing on today is King's War Years in the Second World War. You know, really that that requires uh, a certain amount of space because, of course, the Second World War was a conflict that uh, was on the global scale as opposed to other wars in history. And the complexity of managing global operations in the context of the Second World War is not really easy to to condense into a single volume. So it's been a long journey. But uh, as I've argued to the publisher, Ernest King, in three volumes, is actually uh, doing it on low scale by comparison with the biography of General George Marshall, which Forrest Pogue gave four volumes to General Marshall, so I think Ernie King deserves at least three. Dave, how long exactly have you been working on King's biography when you start to do the research, not just the writing? Yeah, so I start. I first was introduced to Ernest King back in 1995 by Professor Carl Boyd, who encouraged me to, to concentrate on the intelligence dynamics between the British and the Americans, because at the time, in the mid-90s, the crane files were being released, part of Record Group 38 at the National Archives. And of course, that was also connected to the Record Group 457, which is the National Security Agency collection. And initially, I, I bought the line that Ernest King was an Anglophobe who did not understand intelligence and the typical narratives, you know, authors like Michael Gannon and, and others spun up about Ernest King. And I, I, I believed it until I started diving into the original documents. And then I realized that they had gotten the story completely wrong. In fact, Ernest King totally understood the intelligence dimension. In fact, he wrote about it as a student at the Naval War College, the importance of coordinating operations with intelligence. And that's manifested in the Second World War context with his ingenious organization of combat intelligence within the uh, headquarters of what, what they called the Comanche Organization, Commander-in-Chief U.S. Navy. After 1943, he, he literally synthesized special intelligence sources with operational decision-making. And that was really a ingenious organization on his part. And that's connected to his uh, establishment of the Numbered Fleet Organization as well. 
uh, after uh, February of 1943. What were some of the sources, the primary sources that you used for this book? Where did you find them? So the main concentrations of sources are at National Archives College Park, National Archives downtown Washington uh, for material pre-World War II, the Public Record Office, uh, formerly known as, now known as the British National, National Archives. National, it's National Archives in uh, Kew Gardens in London. Correct. Uh, there's a nice pub right around the corner. There's a lot of great material actually in, in Kew that is not looked at from the standpoint of British perspectives on the Americans uh, from an American approach, which is what I've done with King. And then the, the other main concentration of sources uh, is at the Naval Academy and also at the Naval War College. There's another collection out in California at, the, at Stanford at the Hoover Center that is rarely looked at, and that's quite an important collection as well. So there's a lot of traveling involved when you're when you're chasing the, uh, the great Admiral Ernest King. He is a complicated figure who has many, many facets, and in order to really get his story across, you have to look at each aspect of his career and then try and synthesize that into understanding the personality and the decisions that he made uh, in the context of both peace and war. Now, the repositories you mentioned, National Archives in the UK and National Archives here, et cetera, those are primarily professional papers, right? Where would you find his personal papers? How'd you get access to those? His personal papers are sort of concentrated up here in Newport because Walter Muir Whitehill, uh, who wrote who essentially wrote the biography of Ernest King uh, with Ernest King uh, sort of participating in that, collected a lot of personal papers from King himself and took interviews with King after King had a stroke. And together they wrote this, this single volume called Fleet Admiral King, a naval record. And that volume is actually quite good if you compare it against the primary source materials. On the other hand, when you sit down to read this book, it's like sitting down to read the, the phone book. It's almost uh, it's almost too dense for any reader. It's, it's a thick volume that takes a lot of time uh, to get through, and it's not the type of book that you sit down and just read for enjoyment. It's really a reference. How many books have been written about King? You have Whitehill's contribution with, with King's participation but then you have uh, Tom Buell's biography called Master of Sea Power, uh, which is not actually all that good of a book at all. Why is that? How, well, how, you, you're a historian. Why do you assess another historian's uh, book in that way? How do you characterize it? What are the criteria that you would use to evaluate somebody's work? So I, I want to be careful about how I respond to this because I do believe that Tom Buell gave us something to work with. Uh, but his main contribution is the fact that he got to know Walter Muir Whitehill, who gave Tom Buell all of the material that Whitehill had. Tom Buell on his own also went out and got additional material to include personal interviews with people who knew King. And there's also private correspondences between Buell and the people who knew King which contain a lot of information that is very important for historians. It's not really uh, a collection that's, that's widely known, and it's also not a collection that's been sufficiently examined by historians. I mean, I've been through every shred of paper, but I'm only one historian, and, and I think that 
There will be other historians who will write about Ernest King uh, for many years and many, perhaps many centuries to come because the things that he was involved in during the Second World War are singular uh, moments in human history. And I think that there's a lot that Ernest King has to offer uh, not only to historians today, but historians of the future. That's a long, convoluted response to your question about Tom Buell and his book. What I would say about Tom Buell's book, uh, Master of Sea Power, is that it reflects the interests of the time. Uh, it reflects Tom Buell's own personal agendas of the time. And it also reflects an effort an honest effort, I think, to tell the story of Ernest King. Unfortunately, Tom Buell cut some corners and also indulged in his own sort of fictionalizing of Ernest King that do not reflect what I have found in my research of Ernest King. When we left last episode, we were just about to get into World War II. In early 1941, King is concluding his service with the General Board. Can you briefly discuss what the General Board was and if there was any significant evolution in that as a result of King's participation. So the General Board of the Navy was established at the turn of the century as an advisory panel for the Secretary of the Navy. And what happened with King was he had commanded the, the battle force uh, air and had been helping the Navy to learn how to conduct aircraft carrier strike and uh, using uh, patrol bombers to do long-range recon reconnaissance during exercises in three-star rank. One of the interesting things about King is he held three-star rank twice. He was a captain twice. Uh, so it's a different promotion system back then. And King was starting to approach the age where he had to start thinking about retirement uh, in 1938. And there's been a lot of mythology about King, in, in, that, in fact, Tom Buell, created this mythology, that King's career was over in 1938, uh, and essentially he ended up on the general board awaiting retirement, which back then the, the retirement age was 64, and at that point King was facing retirement uh, in, in 1942. So he only had a couple more years of active service left uh, to, to serve until he, he faced mandatory retirement. So he ended up on the general board. Well, the reason he ended up on the general board is because the person who was selected to become CNO was Harold Stark, uh, not Ernest King. And you have to remember that Franklin Roosevelt was facing an election year, and there were a number of interesting personalities who were sort of vying for a candidacy for president. And so Franklin Roosevelt was being very careful about his selections for the offices of Commander-in-Chief U.S. Fleet. Uh, that, which is Dave, I've got to stop you there. That seems sort of unusual because in What's today, for ex it seems like today in politics, nobody <laughs> in, in, in the voting public really seems to care or know about senior flag officers or senior general officers. Mm. And mm. it doesn't seem to play a role in the decision-making process of a political candidate in who they're going to select. Why is 1940 different with King and the others? So it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's a different age, of course. There was no Department of Defense. There was the War Department. You had the Navy Department, this, you know, the, the State Department. 
And they're all sort of their own entities. And the personalities that Roosevelt was dealing with at the time from a political standpoint included people like Douglas MacArthur, who famously was asked to retire by Franklin Roosevelt. And he ended up in the Philippines in two-star rank in retired status. But Franklin Roosevelt sort of sweetened the deal for, for Doug MacArthur by arranging for him to receive an appointment as a field marshal in the Philippine National Army. And, of course, a lot of this hinges upon MacArthur's behavior during the bonus riots. Uh, so figures like MacArthur were out there, and Roosevelt was keenly aware of MacArthur. Uh, within the Navy Department, you have a lot going on. You have Charles Edison as, as the Secretary of the Navy, and Frank Knox is going to come into this mix during this time period as well, you know, Republican, Democrat party politics were a, a factor in some of the decision-making processes uh, with appointments uh, to include those of the CNO and of what was then known as Sinkus. At the time, they had just done the fleet exercises 1938, where they bombed Pearl Harbor for the second time. They all converged for this big meeting in, in, in the Caribbean, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt was holding court. And during those discussions on the decks of the USS Houston, Admiral Block and Admiral Leahy both recommended King to be the next CNO. But within the Navy Department, there was a lot of consternation about you know, deciding on appointing an aviator to the rank of CNO. And Roosevelt did not want to go down that road in an election year. He did not want to have, you know, the, the typical Washington leaks to the media and Drew Pearson's Washington merry-go-round talking about, you know, setting aside, you know, your, your typical gun club member in, in favor of an aviator like King, who did have a reputation for having a temper, by the way. One of the things about King that um, was a factor is that when King was the the chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics, whenever he went to Congress, he would lecture the senators and congressmen about, you know, their their ridiculous questions. He, he would respond to their questions by saying, well, that's a stupid question. <laughs> From a political standpoint, King lacked, he certainly lacked some political finesse, but he was the right man for the job in a war situation, as, a, as that turns out. And Franklin Roosevelt, I think, knew King was his man in the, in the event of a war. And we have to remember 1939 uh, is a pretty big year from the Second World War standpoint. And at the time, we were neutral in the global war that was about to unfold. Of course, Imperial Japan had already invaded China, and, and there was a lot going on in the world. And so a guy yeah, like... Let's talk, let's talk about that for a second, Dave, because what exactly is going on and what he's facing... He's the first senior Navy officer to deal with a two-front war. In 1942, you've got Guadalcanal. You've got, uh, in the Pacific, you've got Operation Torch, Africa. How is he viewing his role? What's his thought process on how to handle this two-front war from a naval perspective? Well, that's an interesting question, Claude. I, I would disagree slightly about the first you know, multiple-front war. Uh, in the sense that during the First World War, it was, that was also a multiple front war. The first American shots were fired in the Pacific against a German uh, vessel. And also the operations at Tsingtao during the First World War are of, are of interest 
uh, in terms of the, the Navy's organization, because as early as 1917, Henry T. Mayo was being discussed as being the, the, the Sinkus which was Commander-in-Chief U.S. Fleet. That decision was delayed until 1919 when Henry Mayo became the first Sinkus of the U.S. Navy. And the whole question between CNO Sinkus relationships hinges upon the realization that the United States Navy was going to become a Navy, quote-unquote, second to none. And then later on, uh, we sort of rebranded that that image to a two-ocean two navy to conform to Franklin Roosevelt's policies of, you know, having having the world sort of broken up into hemispheric areas of focus, you know, under the four policemen and all of that. And so when we think about the Second World War context, we also have to think about the the century that preceded the Second World War and how the United States viewed itself as a maritime power. And then we can get to how Ernest King viewed the Second World War and then how, how we conducted operations during that war. From, that, his personal, well, from his personal writings, how is he approaching this? How do we know that he's given some thought to the history of the United States and its, role, its growing role as a maritime power? Well, his Naval War College thesis reflects his global understanding of sea power. Not land power, but sea power. His thesis, he talks about the importance of positioning. So the, 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 the naval strategy of a fleet and being, for example, he talks about if you position your forces in an appropriate way, uh, a potential adversary will not want to have a war with you. So the whole idea that King was talking about in his Naval War College thesis of November of 1932, which he, he submitted in 32, talks about we in the United States have to avoid the the uh, inclination to play quote unquote citizen fix it, dealing with everybody's problems around the world. We have to prioritize our American strategy to support our interests and our global partners in the international maritime arena, and that's what he writes about. Uh, as early as his war college thesis. And of course, Franklin Roosevelt read that too when he made decisions about appointing uh, King as the Comanche and CNO during the Second World War. So King's global view of sea power is really long before he's ever thrust onto the stage as the Comanche and CNO during the Second World War. One of the things you mentioned in the previous episode was his experience during World War One and how he's watching three senior admirals basically fight it out over the same rice bowl. Can you discuss how some of his peers, uh, not only in the Navy, but in the Army, and specifically General MacArthur and General George Marshall? King's relationship with George Marshall is complicated. He did think that George Marshall was the right man for the job during the Second World War, but he also blamed Marshall for not doing the things that were required in anticipation of Pearl Harbor. He knew that the situation in the Pacific was pretty dire, and he also knew that Douglas MacArthur had a, a penchant for the dramatic. I'm actually looking at something now about MacArthur, and I, I'm reading from my manuscript here. King claimed that he stipulated that MacArthur was a great army officer, but had absolutely no idea 
about naval strategy, that King thought that somebody needed to tell him, quote, he can't actually walk on water. King was a friend of Arthur MacArthur, who is Douglas MacArthur's brother. King thought about Doug, and I'm quoting right now, Doug was every bit a military man, and he had a very impressive face, but there was something missing behind it. He, he spoke in Shakespearean solilo soliloquies, and he never had a conversation with anyone but himself, unquote. I think that's an interesting perspective on Douglas MacArthur, and I think what it does illustrate is King's understanding of the global context of sea power and the problem within the army ranks, to include the Air Force, that they constantly focused on large land masses without really considering the, the maritime dimension. And I think King helped bring that perspective to the global discussions between the British and the Americans, the Canadians, Australians, uh, in prioritizing their efforts during the Second World War. And I think King deserves a lot, a lot of credit for that. Uh, and many historians have, have failed to see that, I think. Can you tell us about King's use of intelligence in coordinating global operations during the Second World War? Ernest King always understood the role of intelligence. He, he wrote about it in his War College thesis as well. And he talked about logistics and integration of planning with objectives and defining what you know desired end states were and making those clear to subordinates so that they could execute without having somebody apply the thousand mile screwdriver. You know, so in other words, King was very good at defining what the objectives were for multiple different theaters simultaneously. After the Casablanca conference. What was the Casablanca conference first? So in the spring of 1943, Franklin Roosevelt felt confident enough to have a showdown with Winston Churchill. 1942 is punctuated by, you know, those battles of Midway, the, the battles of the, the initial landings at North Africa and Operation Torch. By the time you, you're approaching Christmas of 1942, Franklin Roosevelt is ready to sort of take the reins uh, in the global strategic discussions of priorities. Before that, Winston Churchill was dominating a lot of the conversation. And of course, Winston Churchill's objective was to restore the historical prestige and power of the British Empire. Franklin Roosevelt, being uh, associated with the Wilsonian policies of the First World War really had a different take on what the desired end states in the Second World War should be. And he said, I want to have a United Nations with four policemen. And the four policemen in Roosevelt's mind was Britain, of course, uh, the Soviet Union, China, and the United States. Those are the four policemen in, in Roosevelt's mind. Of course, Winston Churchill is saying, why would we want to support the Bolsheviks of the Soviet Union? Why would we want to support China as an equal power to the United States and Britain? Churchill is totally disagreeing with Franklin Roosevelt. And so in the fall of 1942, Franklin Roosevelt said, you know what, I'm just going to clarify what our objectives are. And he said, let's meet. And Roosevelt then suggested, let's go to Casablanca. And you know, the North African campaign was still ongoing at the time. And it's pretty important to note that Franklin Roosevelt chose to go to what was then actually a, 
a hot war zone to have this showdown with Winston Churchill. So we all remember that in the fall of 1942, there was a very popular movie starring Humphrey Bogart called Casablanca. Franklin Roosevelt being sort of strategic and also well aware of the, the popular perspective, chose to go to Casablanca, which at the time was a in, in a war zone in the North Africa campaign. He and Winston Churchill sat down and met with the French, the free French, and discussed what the global priorities would be. At the end of the conference, Franklin Roosevelt, during a press meeting, said that he would expect no uh, conditions for surrender. He, he would say, I want decisive victory against the Axis tripartite. At that point, he also said that he wanted a United Nations. And of course, Winston Churchill at the time was, was hoping to restore the British Empire. But it, until you have the Casablanca conference, you, it, it was very difficult for the Allies to set global strategic priorities. So with the Casablanca conference, Ernest King was able to have the sort of bandwidth and, and free space to have the what followed was the Atlantic Convoy Conference, which took place in Washington, D.C. And it's during that conference that he said, unity of command is not what we want among allies. What we want is unity of effort, which is different. So what King said at the, Cas at the Casablanca Conference and then the Atlantic Convoy Conference was, we have to set our priorities. And the first priority is an invasion of continental Europe. So it's with those conferences of the spring of 1943 that King is the one that really pushed it over the edge and saying that we're going to do uh, Operation Overlord as the first priority, get to the Europe first objective, and then we're going to concentrate on the Pacific. So it's really King who sets that priority on Europe first after Casablanca, it's it's not the British, it's King that's pushing that because he's trying to set the priorities for operations in the Pacific and the restoration of stability uh, on the global stage under the four policemen vision that Franklin Roosevelt had articulated. In the Pacific theater, how does he, what's his relationship with Chester Nimitz? So the relationship between Ernest King and Chester Nimitz really dates back to 1906. And they had worked together quite often uh, during the wireless tests, which we talked about in the previous episode. But also in May of 1917, uh, King was the fleet engineer for the Atlantic fleet, and he got together with Chester Nimitz, and together they came up with the procedure to do the first underway replenishment uh, involving the USS Maumee and the destroyers that were going to Ireland, about 47 destroyers by the end of the First World War, uh, based out of Queenstown. And it was all Ernie King and Chester Nimitz figuring out how to do that underway replenishment uh, technique. I actually have a drawing that, that King made at the time showing the procedure, and it's basically the same way we do underway replenishment uh, today in the 21st century context. So uh, you can see that, that that partnership between King and Nimitz, is it, it did produce some pretty important results for the U.S. Navy. Jumping ahead, I would say that Chester Nimitz had one of the more important roles in getting King appointed as the Atlantic Fleet Commander in the spring of 1941. Chester Nimitz was the chief of the Bureau of Navigation, and he and Harold Stark were working together 
to reestablish the geographic fleet command. So the Atlantic fleet ceased to exist uh, back in 1922. And in, in February of 1941, they reestablished the Atlantic fleet. And King was the one who was selected for command of the Atlantic fleet. Chester Nimitz had a hand in making that happen. So, you know, when you asked about King's role in the general board, he was basically waiting for the election to take place and for Harold Stark to create the geographic fleet organizations that had been disbanded uh, when they actually broke up the uh, CNO's office and, and created the commander-in-chief U.S. fleet position t about 20 years earlier. So when King assumed command of the Atlantic fleet, I always love his speech that he delivered when he took command of the Atlantic fleet. He said, and I'm quoting now, all hands should be prepared for war. King growled in his deep Midwestern draw. And then, quote, the youngest and most inexperienced sailor on board is just as important as I am. He goes on to say, the sharks don't care about rank. So I shall do my part and you are expected to do yours with equal zest, unquote. Now, you got to imagine that here's a, a four-star admiral standing on the deck saying that I'm just as important as you are the most junior sailor in the rank. And I, I just always love his quote saying that the sharks don't care about rank. I think that's a that's an important leadership point that King would give us today is that if you're worried about what's on your collar or, you know, whatever your rank is, that's that's really a superfluous thing to worry about. You know, the, the, the objective here is to get everybody to working on the same shade of music in order to achieve the common objectives that we have in the maritime domain. And I think King understood that quite well. After Pearl Harbor, of course, King found himself in an unprecedented position where the fleet was seriously damaged by the Japanese. You're already essentially at war in the Atlantic before Pearl Harbor. And of course, as the Atlantic fleet commander, King was the one who was involved when the Reuben James was sunk on Halloween night of 1941, and everybody was sort of thinking that the war was going to start in the Atlantic, not in the Pacific. So the attack on Pearl Harbor truly was a, a shock and a surprise for everyone, uh, to include the president. And so King was called down from Newport, where he was based as the Atlantic Fleet Commander, and he took the train from Kingston Station and went to Washington, D.C., and his aide, George Russell, was with him. One thing that George Russell remembered was that the first thing King did was go to his family. Of course, he had a large family, and it's interesting to note that King was, you know, the first thing he wanted to do was go see his family after that disaster at Pearl Harbor. The next day, he went to the Navy Department, and of course, Harold Stark, the CNO, was there, and there was a cloud around him, and According to Forrest Sherman, who was there, King walked into Stark's office with a tear in his eye and he shook his hand and he said, we'll get through this. So when you think about that disaster at Pearl Harbor, I mean, it, it, I don't think even today we, we've seen September 11th, but I, I don't think we fully understand the true shock of Pearl Harbor at the time. It was completely unprecedented in terms of the damage that was sustained uh, at, during that attack. On the other end of the scale, you have the largest amphibious operation in history and most successful, and that's with D-Day. What was King's role with D-Day operations? Ernie King is the one who actually made the decision for Ike on going or no, not going, because uh, the, the 
British were trying to do other diversionary type of operations, you know, up in Norway or Calais or the Brits and really wanted to go into the Balkans. And so there was a big fight happening about doing Mediterranean operations. And finally, uh, I think it was at Quebec, King said, look, you can keep the LSTs for Overlord, but uh, those LSTs are going to the Pacific no later than August of 44. And so it was a use of them or use them or lose them. Mentality. You're going to lose them. Bottom line is what King said. And Franklin Roosevelt backed him up. So, you know, the famous movie, you know, uh, The Longest Day, where Eisenhower is laboring over the decision to go or not go is kind of overblown because the decision was already made for Eisenhower. He was not going to be able to go as far as King was concerned if he didn't go in June of 1944. Those ships were going to go to the Pacific, uh, whether anybody liked it or not. And Franklin Roosevelt said, okay, I, I understand. So King had that uh, authority to do that. King retired shortly thereafter, but he's still very visible with a couple of incidents and specifically the revolt of the admirals. And this is a subject that has come up uh, once, once or twice in the past few years in newspapers on more recent events that people try to relate it to to this top, to this uh, term. But can you tell us what King's role was with Revolt of the Admirals and what it was? Well, so Ernie King being an aviator and, and uh, being involved with the technological advances that, that preceded the Second World War, fully understood uh, the concept of strategic air power. He tried to establish the basic framework for joint relationships between the uh, War Department and the Navy Department, he firmly disagreed with the idea of merging naval forces with military forces. Is that, his, because he, is that because of his earlier views that you wanted unity of effort, not unity of command? I mean, it's related to that, but the, the bigger issue for, from King's point of view was that military forces are concentrated primarily on land operations, whereas naval forces are primarily concerned with, with maritime, global maritime operations. A ship that operates in the Atlantic can operate just as well in the Pacific, and it's just a matter of, of managing resources. And, you know, there is a famous moment where King is fighting with Churchill in London during the London Conference of 42 about the question of priorities, and Churchill wanted something to happen in Europe as quickly as possible. And, of course, Roosevelt wanted the United States Navy to respond to the attack on Pearl Harbor as quickly as possible. And, of course, there was a lot of rumors about the Imperial Japanese threat on the West Coast. So King was under a lot of pressure. And during a fight with Churchill in London, King said, quote, Mr. Churchill had an army view of the world and did not like the word logistics. Churchill insisted that the King's English had no such word. Whenever Ernest King used the term, Churchill always barked back, logistics, what is that? And so King really was like, who is this guy? He's, he's you know, smart enough to be prime minister. But uh, Churchill never fully understood the art of prioritizing supply and the art of getting those supplies to where they needed to be in the context of, of battle operations, combat operations. And King was, was really a master of logistics, if anything, as demonstrated in, in the Second World War. One of the things that I've found in my research 
is that the his counterparts on the British side of things really had a great deal of respect for Ernest King. Uh, I'm quoting Andrew Cunningham uh, as we speak now. Andrew Cunningham, uh, who served as first sea lord after Dudley Pound died, described Ernest King as, quote, a man of immense capacity and ability, quite ruthless in his methods. King was not an easy person to get on with, but on the whole, I think Ernest King was the right man in the right place, not content with fighting the enemy, he was usually fighting someone on his own side as well. Allenbrook, uh, the army counterpart on the British staff, uh, lauded King as, quote, the tough and stubborn King, the old crustacean, as one of his countrymen called him, the ablest strategist on the American chiefs of staff. Now, those are British perspectives on somebody who has been maligned by other historians as being an Anglophobe. Uh, in fact, what the British thought was King was the guy who kind of stood up to people like Churchill and, and helped navigate the global strategic issues that the Allies faced in the context of balancing strategic priorities to achieve you know, desired ends against the Axis tripartite of the Second World War. And that was no easy task, to be sure. Getting back to the revolt of the admirals, what was his position on the Air Force when it's created? So it's interesting. King had a very large family. Uh, he was a devoted father and family man. Among others, his son-in-law ended up becoming a general in the United States Air Force and actually was chief of staff of the Air Force, uh, General Smith, and a uh, four-star uh, Air Force guy. And Jan Smith, his... his uh, his grandson uh, told me about conversations between uh, Grandpa King and uh, his father, General Smith, about the question of air power. Ernest King certainly understood, from a theoretical standpoint, the benefit of air power. However, Ernest King had that classic view of the world that military operations are for armies and land forces, naval operations are the maritime component. And really, from, from King's point of view, the two different services had different functions. Navies are always operationally relevant, whether it's peace or war. If you have an earthquake, King responded to an earthquake uh, during his command of the Lexington. Navies are always operating, whereas armies aren't necessarily required in peacetime. And that's sort of King's view of the world. On the question of technology, I'm going to go ahead and quote something uh, that, that he said in 1947, right around the time when the revolt of the admirals was about to, to explode. King observed in 1947, quote, no matter how ingenious the war machines, no matter how marvelous the developments of science, we must always remember that the wars of the future, if more wars there must be, will be similar to the wars of the past. Looking outward to the future, we must, if you like, paraphrase the phrase waging war. Why should we not make as much effort to win the peace as we do to win the war? Why should we not wage peace? That's an interesting perspective. That's the King Valedictory Address, actually, in which he says all that. And it was in direct response to what Pap Arnold and General Spatz and the rest of the Air Force uh, advocates were, were espousing. Uh, one of the things that King said in Congress 
was that there are two surfaces on planet Earth. One surface is land and the other is, is, is oceanic. The two surfaces require two different approaches from a strategic standpoint. So King's perspective, of course, being a naval perspective, uh, stood in some amount of contrast with the perspectives that were being espoused by people like his son-in-law, who became a, a four-star Air Force officer. So uh, one of the things I, I, in sort of thinking about this, I, I would also emphasize the fact that King had six daughters and a son named you know, Ernie King Jr. He went by Joe. So seven children. And those seven children were born between 1905 and 1923. During that period of 1905 to 1923, King commanded more than five warships and was chief of staff of the Atlantic Fleet. One of the things that his his daughters always talked about was how much of a devoted family man he actually was as a father. And I think that's an important thing that people should remember about Ernest King as well, is that here you have a guy who goes out and qualifies in submarines, qualifies as an aviator. He's commanding multiple different types of warships. He's going to the Naval War College. He's a busy guy. You know, he has seven children, and eventually there's 14 grandchildren, I believe. And if anything, as a historian, it's been my privilege to get to know the family in, in pretty good ways. And, and they've, they've still got material in the family that... Um, they've graciously shared with me in, in my research. Let's wrap this up with a lighter question. You and I have been around the Navy for a long time now, and we've seen a lot of uniforms go. We've seen a lot of uniforms come, unfortunately. <laughs> what was King's idea for the gray uniform? Around about 1942, Ernest King came up with an idea in response to the question of uniforms. He wanted to standardize U.S. Navy uniforms so that you know, you didn't have to carry different variations of naval uniforms. You, of course, had your, your classic service dress blue uniform, but then you also had the, the choker whites, which were used as a service uniform. That It wasn't just a parade uniform. You actually wore that uniform if you were out in the Pacific. Around about 1942, the U.S. Navy adopted the Army-style khaki uniform, and King thought that that was just a little bit too joint for his liking. King came up with the idea of a standardized U.S. naval uniform that also still reflected the U.S. Navy. And he personally designed a uniform that was gray in color. And it was a, actually, a, in my opinion, it was quite serviceable as a, as a uniform, but it was very unpopular. The King gray uniform, nobody liked it. But if you were assigned to his staff, that's the uniform you would have been wearing uh, on, on King's staff. It lasted until about 1947, and then it just sort of faded off. But I do think that the King gray uniform was a, was a reflection of his view of efficiency. I think it was a reflection of his view that the naval service was different than the land services. But unfortunately, it was just not very popular in the context of fashion in the Second World War. There is a little moment in the, the context of the Second World War where King was out in San Francisco to meet with Chester Nimitz to coordinate future strategy in the, in the Asiatic theater of operations. And Nimitz was standing, awaiting his car to arrive, and King was doing the same thing. And King was wearing his King gray uniform, and Nimitz was standing in his service dress blue uniform with all the gold and, you know, accoutrements. And, uh, 
one of the guys at, at the curbside yelled at King saying, hey, pick up the luggage and load it into the, the Admiral's car. And King just turned to the guy and said, are you kidding? <laughs> you know, because King was Nimitz's boss, but nobody knew who King was, really. Uh, King did avoid the limelight as much as possible. But it's kind of funny that his uh, gray uniform appeared at least to one person as being sort of a, a, a uniform worn by people that would carry luggage. Dr. David Conan, director of Hattendorf Historical Center at the Naval War College. Dave, thanks again for joining us on Preble Hall. We look forward to having you again, and good luck with your book. Hey, thank you, Claude. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.